now that we come to Acts chapter 12, <clears throat> there has been a unveiling so far of the relationship and the meaning of salvation that is going to the ends of the earth, that the gospel has not only been to Jerusalem, and while Jesus was ministering, he said things like, I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel. And then towards the end of the ministry, Christ Jesus flings the door open wide and says, now to the Gentiles, the rest of the nations, this same gospel will go. And thus we have seen it take place. Peter needs extra encouragement and understanding. And we're thankful for that because we don't put things together very quickly either. <clears throat> but now the Gentiles, there's been a large, massive ingathering of Gentiles graciously by God. And the church has taken root in Antioch. Um, and now there's a shift back to Judea and a focus on what is happening <clears throat> here. We are encounter this person named Herod, and there's a number of them because this is a title. And so this is Herod Agrippa, whose rule started to expand a few times from AD 37, though he ruled all the way, I think from the age of like four, technically, that's when his father died, and this was 9 BC. So, <clears throat> you know, as a, as a little boy, you don't really rule. <laughs> uh, you have others do that for you, but it it really comes to um, a greater expansion at AD 37. And then in 41, this is where he begins to rule over Judea. And he becomes quite popular to the Jewish people. Josephus is a writer um, not long after these times. And in his Jew Jewish wars, uh, he documents that that uh, Herod Agrippa was particularly close and friendly with the Pharisees. And this takes place here, and we see it. They're just called the Jews at this point, but it's very likely that that's who this is referring to. <clears throat> this event that we're talking about is probably 43 AD, 42, 40, 43. At the end of this chapter, Herod is going to supernaturally die by God's judgment, and that we know historically is AD 44. So that's a, just a timeline situation for you. <clears throat> now, because there is a relationship, a tight relationship between Herod Agrippa and the Jews, he seeks to persecute the church. And literally what the text reads in verse 1 is about that time Herod the king Instead of ESV laid violent hands, he, he sought to lay on hands specifically to harm or to do evil to the church. That, that is his intention. He wants to harm them. He wants to do evil to the Christian church. <clears throat> Why, we should ask, does he desire to do this? Why does he desire to do this? This is a point of theological instruction for you. From a theological perspective, we understand that God has given to us the truth about man. Sometimes we might use a fancy word called anthropology, the study of who man is. And the Bible tells us that the problem with each and every one of us lies in our loves. The Lord has instituted a moral law 
which has been summarized in a number of different ways, but poignantly as love your neighbor as yourself is a second table of law. And we have hopefully understood even recently from Romans 13 that to love your neighbor as yourself means to live righteously with respect to your neighbor. It's not ooey gooey feelings. It's living righteously to your neighbor. Lots of people confuse that. Um, I could name very famous evangelical pastors today who confuse what love actually is. But love is in this way to love, to treat your neighbor as God would have you. Thusly, we see Herod's heart being in the grips of sin sits directly contrary in his motivations. He's aiming to do evil. It's the opposite of aiming to do love. He's aiming to do harm, not aiming to do righteously. You see how these are opposed. He is in the grip of sin, and that's what it looks like when somebody is. So sadly, the problem, the reason he desires to do this is evil hatred is bound up in the heart of every man and every woman and every child that stirs us up to bad deeds. This is our problem that the gospel answers. Now, you also need to be instructed um, in this life regarding the church. Because man's heart is so bent, bent like so, this way, persecution for the church is inevitable. Until the end of the age, the progress of the gospel is going to be punctuated, whether more greatly or in in a smaller manner, with the seeming impediment of persecution. It will seem to get in the way of the spread of the gospel, though it is just a part of the way God has ordained things. Paul states a maxim that I love, and you probably all know in 2 Timothy 3, says, quote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this is how men is bent, and, and therefore that's why persecution is coming. That's what's wrong. And this is also from another angle, <clears throat> inevitable, because this is truly how the world works. We can see it from two different perspectives. But I want to console you by application. Take heart that this is the case, beloved, because opposition, when it comes, often is an indicator that you're going the right way and not the wrong way. Opposition, people leaving, people forsaking you, or people uh, getting um, all manner of bent out of shape, or what have you, even uh, physical persecution could mean that you have entered into great faithfulness to God. You just need to make sure that your faithfulness is mingled also with the other virtues of the faith, namely gentleness, kindness, and aiming for their ultimate good, even if others perceive it not. So be comforted. Opposition is not a bad thing. It's inevitable, and it means you're on the right track, lest you examine yourself and find out you're just a jerk. (laughs) Let that not be the case either. Now, in light of that, we learn, verse 2, what this persecution looks like. He just expands on 
what he meant by laying violent hands or or laying hands on to harm them. Namely, in verse 2, we read, He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. That's what it means. means that Apostle James is killed. This is the record of the first apostle martyred in the line of duty. First apostle that's killed for the faith. Now we've seen Stephen killed, not an apostle, he's a deacon of the early church, but this is the first apostle. James was the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, and James is the one who's known as sometimes is called the inner three, James, Peter, and John. You'll see these three accompanying Jesus, and and particularly important times, the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up and gets to see the the revealed glory, Jesus shining brightly, speaking to two dead guys who are not really dead. They're just in the presence of of God, uh, namely Moses and Elijah, a, a glorious thing, and they're not to tell that until after the resurrection. James is privileged even in a special sense beyond some of the other apostles in that way. And so you ask yourself, well, why exactly does James then get put to death? Why does this, why does this happen? Now it's important for us to remember, and some of you probably do Matthew and Mark tell us about a time that Jesus, after prophesying that he will soon come to his crucifixion, And yet, three days later, he will resurrect. John, James, and their mother come up to Jesus and have a conversation about uh, about what they would like after Jesus' kingdom is inaugurated and comes in this way, in in a more full manner. And they say this, Jesus, grant to us to sit one at the right hand and one at the left in your glory. They wanted a particularly prominent place in the kingdom of Christ, to which the Lord replies with another prophecy. Well, first he says, nah, that's not my choice. That's up to the Father. And here's another prophecy for you. You too will drink the cup that I have to drink. Namely, you're going to die as well in a similar manner to me. You will die for the cause. So James, in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, because Jesus is the true prophet of God, uh, as the God-man and our Christ, <clears throat> he has died in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. This, this shows that Jesus is a, a true prophet in that manner, and this is why he has to die. Now, two words of consolation. I'll, I'll be using those. Hopefully in every sermon, if I say consolation, you know this is an application of the meaning of the text of Scripture or the principles thereof. And so I've just made the exegetical point. Now I'm making the applicational point. Point one, application, important principle to know. Number one, God has ordained that all of his people would serve a specific purpose in our time, we, we all have a specific purpose in God's redemptive plan. 
They're different. They're unique. And they're unique to us specifically. We have a course to run in this life and will not draw near to death, though it may seem that at times, until these things have been accomplished in our lives. Not a moment sooner, not a moment later. Psalm 139, 16 beautifully says, quote, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as of yet there was none of them. This statement, and it's many ways in the Bible, is not just simply that your life is documented as though God like, came to know that somehow. No, the purpose of them is, is inscribed in the eternal plan of God. God's purpose is fulfilled in your life perfectly without one misstep ever. And thusly, we take great encouragement that God has ordained for us a purpose that cannot be taken away, though we don't know the full extent of what that is. And so the exhortation to this is, because that is the case, our life ought to be aimed at faithfulness. That's, that's our responsibility. And you let him work out all of his purposes um, and get in line with how he's laid it out. <clears throat> Secondly, second principle is, we also learn, because this is James... The apostle. We learn that we ourselves and none, none of us really is too important that the kingdom of God would come to a, a, an end if, if, if we do. We, none of us um, is too important to die a tragic fate like this. It, it is not, in one sense, a glorious thing to be martyred. Uh, it's actually a pretty shameful thing in some ways, and in other ways, it's glorious because we suffer with Christ. But it's James is not too important for this, and neither the other apostles, and, and thus we too should understand that the kingdom will press on without us, and so will all of God's purposes. This should help us then do two things. Namely, it should encourage us to humility. And, and reflecting on our very own lives, our ministries, and whatever else we might do. Secondly, we also ought to affirm, on the other hand, that it is an honor to suffer even as the Lord Jesus Christ did. This is the path he ran. If we get to run it to this way, it's a cause of joy for us because Romans eight seventeen says... We know that those who suffer with him will also be glorified with him. It's a privilege. <clears throat> in light of this point, we cap it a little bit and press on to verse 3 and 4, which I want you to read with me. Please look in your Bible. It says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews that is Herod, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people.
Now, <clears throat> the first thing that we'll say is simply that Herod here, you might be able to do this as an outside, outside party, but it's nice to know that <clears throat> infallibly the Holy Spirit has sort of opens up the chest cavity and shows us the heart of man and tells us what is actually going on in the inner workings. And it's helpful for us to know here that <clears throat> as um, we're looking at Herod and what's going on, we get an insight into the, the twistedness of his pleasures, the twistedness of his loves, as I've termed it previously. We see first how <clears throat> these Christ-rejecting Jews are made happy by the persecution of the Christian church. They like it that the church is suffering. In their minds, they have classified the church as their enemies. And this is why the Apostle Paul says they have become enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who align themselves against God's people or align themselves against God's people have also aligned themselves against God. And it's no advantage to be a Jew at that point. It's a great disadvantage in a huge sense. Wicked. Secondly, Herod notices this and sees that they, they very much like what what he has done, and so he wants to capitalize that on this, and he sees an opportunity to gain political advantage. You don't ever see that in our politics today, do you? Right? He he sees, oh, my constituents like this. I'm close with the Pharisees, as we know from history and Josephus. And now he's like, oh, they like this. Let's let's lock up another apostle. And then likely the the idea is let's kill him too. Um, that is surely the intention. And <clears throat> even though this is sinfully wrong, he sees it as a benefit to him, so he's going to do it anyways. The, the, ends, or the ends justifies the means, he might think, though it does not. Now, <clears throat> in light of this idea, what I want to draw out for you from the text is when Herod detains Peter here, <clears throat> we see that Luke notes two things, and, or one thing in two different ways, namely that the Passover is underway. We should remember that Jesus himself was executed, um, and the Jews didn't want him to remain on the cross uh, uh, while, their, while their holy days were coming up, and so... What they want to do is preserve the, the festival that they're about to observe according to the law. <clears throat> and so they have Jesus taken down here. They also have a problem. They don't want anything to, to go on uh, trial-wise or execution-wise. So they leave him in prison for these days because they want to <clears throat> preserve one thing. Now, I hope you see how thick the irony is here, <laughs> really. It, it, it is plain and obvious. On the one hand, the Jews are respecting the ceremonial commands of the law and their sacrifices. And they, they keep these days holy. 
on the one hand, yet on the other hand, they are more than willing to defile themselves with a great transgression, that is, entertain a false trial, you could call it a kangaroo court, and then murder Peter. That's their intention. They did it with James. What makes you think they wouldn't do it again? This has been the case with Stephen. This is their track record. They are aimed at doing the same things here. And so the prophets often decry the same sinfulness. Isaiah 29.13 says, This people draws near with their mouth and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. They have regard for the shadows of the law, but the true substance, which is Messiah Jesus, who is eternally honored, they have no time for. They don't care about in the least. Their problem is, we we mix this up really bad in evangelicalism today. Let me make it really clear. Their problem is not obeying the law. Their problem rather is selectively obeying the law of God and really neglecting the more weighty matters of it, especially those things which pertain uh, to the moral law of God and his commandments. Specifically, we see here that there is a blatant rejection and a blatant disregard for the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You should not learn it as you shall not lie. That's okay for little kids. You should probably learn it the correct way, (laughs) slightly different. Um, And what it means is that God in in his righteousness grants to us the privilege of a fair trial of 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 a, of keeping our name intact and and therefore he forbids false witness this is why a false trial which is what has happened with <clears throat> James and also with Stephen and we see often in the New Testament with Jesus himself is a, a dishonoring of the ninth commandment it's a breaking of it we, we deserve these things as image bearers of God. <clears throat> Furthermore, they have already supported the murdering of James. That's breaking of the sixth commandment, as you know. And so to uphold the Passover in one sense, and then to turn a blind eye to the murder of another man falsely for, for no reason at all, is to show how sinfully inverted their priorities are. We could apply this further. I'll let you do that in your spare time. Now, whenever you're reading the narratives in the Bible, you should always note when there's intrigue in the narrative that's set up by the author themselves. We notice that in verse 4, Herod, uh, he specifically notes that Herod uh, gets Peter locked up very well and he sets... Four squads, and, and you'd know this if you looked in the commentary, four squads of four soldiers, four squads of, of four soldiers equaling 16 uh, that rotated, and there's various different ways that they did that in that day uh, to guard Peter, which just simply tells us this, it's impossible 
to escape. And though it's historically true, it's supposed to actually set us up for verse 5 and feel the impact of what goes on in verse 5. So please read verse 5 with me being set up by Luke to hear it well. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In the Greek, for just an exegetical note, um, you should know that we, we find a particle here, men, and followed by the conjunction de, uh, which introduces to us a concessive clause. I'll, I'll explain that. I, I learned it as the, the, the men de or men die rule in, in Greek. Uh, but what we do in English is something the same. I've, I've done it a couple times just to show you how we already do it. On the one hand, this. On the other hand, that. That's what's going on here. So <clears throat> to emphasize Luke's theological point in verse 5, he says, Therefore, on the one hand, Peter was guarded or kept in prison. But on the other hand... And in the Greek, it's way more flexible in word order. It specifically begins with prayer. But on the other hand, prayer was earnestly being made by the church to God concerning him. That's the literal rendering of it. Beautiful. The contrast is meant to strike us. Prison bars versus praying believers. Who's going to come out on top? Amen, son. Naturally speaking, the church doesn't stand a chance, right? No, naturally speaking, we don't. But we do not live in a purely material universe, but rather an enchanted supernatural one. And this is what I want to explain to you regarding prayer. <clears throat> Let me just note that for the remainder of the sermon, I intend to be in both theological instruction in, in one area, and then I want to exhort you in five ways. So, first, theological instruction, which is a form of application. What is prayer? Thank you. Not right now, Fred. Is that Elias? He's doing our catechism question. Uh, uh, you can say it next time when I'm more prepared. Prayer is essentially a believer's... Note the term. I, I want to say this very carefully, so, so listen to me. Prayer is essentially a believer's sacrificial offering of our soul's desires and everything else that goes on in the soul to God. A believer's sacrificial offering of his soul's desires to God. That's what it is. Yet, <clears throat> there's a very basic point here which troubles and makes people very... Uh, unable to square away 
the relationship between the eternal God who has ordained all things, who never changes in any way, and our acting in time, especially in the area of prayer. And so you have people, lots of people, lots of Christians who've been in the church for many years, ask themselves, why pray? Some, some even say, why do anything at all if God has ordained all things? And so what I want to do is I've crafted a statement that I want to break down so that you once and for all might finally and fully grasp the meaning of these things and not struggle with this question yourself, but actually really understand <clears throat> the relationship and understand uh, my, my main goal is really to motivate you to pray like they they have in this text <clears throat> but let's let's let me give you my statement and then we'll break it down i hope it's helpful to you prayer is god's foreordained means whereby his revealed will is offered back up to him for the purpose of accomplishing his providential will. Prayer is God's foreordained means whereby his revealed will is offered back up to him for the purpose of accomplishing his providential will. And I want to unpack this in three parts. First, what do I mean by foreordained means? Here's what I mean. God has determined that creature man would have a real and experiential relationship with God despite the differences in our natures. He is eternal and we are time-bound, created. And yet God desires in his will that there would be some means whereby we interact with him in a way that uh, is, is meaningful and real. Thus, his eternal plan includes this practical ritual called prayer, which allows us to interact with God in a way that is natural to us as creatures. So, in this way, there is a reciprocal relationship between God and man through prayer. There is a back and a forth. A a praying, and from God's side, a listening. An answering and a, a thankful praising from the creature. A real relationship, and it's exercised through prayer. That's why prayer is one of the foundational aspects and cornerstones of the Christian life, because this is actually the way in which you experience God. Don't have time to explain how that's misused. I'll just leave that for a later time. Secondly, it is a means whereby his revealed will is prayed back to him, offered up back to him. Our prayers will not be answered affirmatively. And thusly, we will not experience God in our lives if our requests, petitions, desires do not correspond with the written 
Or as I'm saying, revealed will of God. The answer is no. They must correspond with Scripture. Otherwise, they are fruitless. The revealed will of God is how I would like to speak about the Scriptures because it clarifies all sorts of things for us. Revealed means it's in the mind of God and He reveals it to you through His Word. It's simply what it means. So, in this case, it says that when we pray... Our requests are are not floating out in space somewhere unattached to anything, but they're rather anchored in a true and stable knowledge of God only found in the word. And, And this is because the Lord never acts contrary to his word because it's the revelation of who he is in his character. And so our prayers must be thoughtful extensions of God's word into real life application. I'll say that again. Our prayers must be thoughtful extensions of God's word into real life application or action, doing, so, so forth. So let me give you an illustration or an example. Just make it clear for you. God is just, and therefore my petitions of justice in, an, in an, a particular instance is an appropriate Praying the will of God, revealed will of God in Scripture. God, you are just, be just here. That's a good, that's a good scriptural biblical prayer, and that's what I mean <clears throat> here. But it's not only that, it is also the way the means by which his providential will is accomplished. So prayer not only functions as the means of whereby we experience relationship with God, but it is also the means of accomplishing God's eternal will in actual history. So when the Lord answers our requests, when the Lord answers our request, I'm calling this God's providential will. I don't know anybody else that calls it that. I'm sure they do. I I just find it helpful and accurate. <clears throat> so according to my previous example, let me add, add one thing and then hopefully this will be very, very helpful to you. So my previously held example is that <clears throat> God is eternally just. That's part of his character. And we pray that God would grant justice in a given situation. That's our prayer. Well, what happens after that? What happens after that is that he works his will through the courts, through the hearts of men, through all sorts of circumstances resulting in a justified judicial verdict before men. And this is the providence of God's answered prayer. That, that's, that's him showing you who he is. That, that's God interacting with you. In your life. That, that's the experience of God for the believer. <clears throat> Providential will. The providence of answered prayer is God's, what, you know, David will say time and time again, I called the Lord and he answered me. Well, how did he do that? He actually worked everything in his life to, to grant his request. 
justice would look like sometimes his enemies being put under his feet. Sometimes it would look like escape from Saul. Sometimes it would look like being alleviated from, from great distress. And the historical unfolding of, of that and whatever the case might be is the providence of his answered prayer. It's God saying, I heard you. I love you. You're my son. Now, <clears throat> let me, um, I want to read our text again. And verse 12, verse 5 and verse 12. And I want to make an exegetical observation and I want to apply it. So first, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, verse 12, a further explanation of what this, how this actually took place and what it looked like <clears throat> exactly. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, that is the angel uh, broke him out of jail, and he goes to the house of Mary. We'll cover all this, but just listen to this. The, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, listen, where many were gathered together, and we're praying. So this is somebody's house. And they are, there's many. It's not, it's not the church gathering um, in the way that we're experiencing it as of right now. <clears throat> the point that I would make is that th- this is, the pattern in this verse is a, is a private prayer setting, which doesn't fit in the corporate worship of the church, not on a Sunday service. Or in a Sunday school, those, those, of course, are important and always necessary. In fact, you're, it's a very unhealthy church that doesn't do those things. But I'm advocating for something more, namely a pattern that we find here in Scripture. That is uh, private gatherings of believers to, uh, for the particular purpose of prayer together. <clears throat> and this is um, the, the way in which God actually is a church... As a whole, let alone an individual, but a church as a whole experience God. So if we're, if we're like, we want to uh, be uh, growing in the faith and we want to experience God deeply here, that's your answer. This pattern, private prayer gatherings, whereby we are regularly setting ourselves before the Lord to request of Him our desires. Now, <clears throat> I have two primary um, Exhortations. The first one is don't be satisfied with any pattern of life that neglects this aspect. I've heard from many pastors in the past that um, the prayer gatherings at, at the church were always small and you should be content with that. And I, I agree we should be content in all things. But I, 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 I want to say that <clears throat> um, we ought not to be content with a lack of faithfulness. It, it is faithfulness for us to make the biblical patterns our patterns, to make what the Bible says the godly man and the righteous, the righteous woman do weekly, monthly, yearly, daily, hourly. Uh, those patterns ought to be our patterns. That's what it means to be made in the image of Christ. And we want to be those kind of people, which takes time and takes effort and takes grace towards one another. 
But nonetheless, we, not, we ought not to be satisfied unless we reach those regular routines. So this is a second exhortation, and this is just my proposal. I haven't talked with anybody about this. But if someone is stirred up to pray in this way, then partner with members in your local area to gather and pray. Now, I've said this before. You could do that on Thursday night with Stevens, or you could find your own time in your own place um, and gather with other, other believers who are closer to you since we are a commuter church. And then once you do so, you, you have full permission for me to do so. And if you do so, then just call elders to come alongside and help, help pray more effectively and teach you in that manner. Right now in, at the Stevens, we're going through uh, what is prayer according to the catechism. And we're gaining basic yet amazing theological principles which are necessary to understand prayer, because if you don't understand prayer, you can never grow in it. And most people, if you pull them, don't know what prayer is, even though they do it. They're not really conscious of the essential character or what guides us in prayer. And so that's what we're learning if you want to join us on Thursday. <clears throat> so those are two exhortations. Now I have a, another observation and an encouragement. Okay, three encouragements. First of all, in this, we see that the text prayed ektenos. Ektenos. The, the Greek reads that way, and the standard dictionary, BDAG as it's referred to, says, pertaining to be persevering. And a couple words that are used to translate it variously in the New Testament is eagerly, fervently, constantly. Now, you fail at this, and so do I. So test yourself. I don't want to, I'm, I'm not laying out tests for you. What I want to do is encourage you to, in such a way that you could actually accomplish this. Practical questions that you must answer, you must deal with in order to become earnestly praying. Constantly praying, fervently praying. If you want to be one of these people, then... <clears throat> You need to know three things. First, earnestness requires faith that God answers according to his revealed will. Earnestness requires faith that God answers according to his re revealed will. Proof text, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that is God, that if we ask anything According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked for him. I have asked this, he will grant it in one way or another. If you don't believe that he will answer it, you will waver and you will not be earnest in your prayers. So seek to pray the will of God. And have faith that he will answer you. Fundamental requirement. Secondly, <clears throat> the church can't pray together in earnestness if there is not a level of vulnerability. <clears throat> you must be willing to share things you'd rather not share. In order to actually succeed in the areas of sanctification that you and I both need. Although I do have wise disclaimers for this. 
you look at my time, I don't have time for those. And I, I don't actually think that any of you will share too much personal. <laughs> I guarantee you won't. In fact, most of you will share way too little. What <clears throat> you need to do, and it is helpful in the small group setting, is to find uh, yourself opening up about things that are harder to share. It, it's way easy to share about your health and things like this, your health and your finances. It's much more difficult to share about your spiritual struggles and your relational struggles that have persisted throughout all of your life, even your coldness, uh, which, uh, because it requires accountability. Vulnerability is required. Thirdly, constancy. What's wrapped up in that word by its nature is uh, hopefully obvious to you, <clears throat> but that is uh, constancy is is a regular pattern, which I don't think I have to explain to you. So just being made aware of that, and providentially so. I, I haven't planned this. In Colossians, we saw this. In Titus, we saw this. Um, in in various other places, we've in First Peter, we saw this. For those who were here at that time. Um, that means it's come up a lot in in our our life as a church and therefore it's on your plate to make it happen it's on your plate to carve out the time it's on your plate to say i'm doing this not the elders this is self-initiation this is this is where we must go as a church when you hear the word you say how do i do it not if nothing like that when and how do I put this into practice? That is the faithful response to the scriptures. And because we are weak and failing, despite all of our, our sanctified success, uh, let us go to the Lord and ask him for our help <clears throat> in pursuing a life of godliness.